Blog Talk Radio. the September 9th, 2012 edition of Don't Let It Go Unheard. It's the podcast devoted to the discussion of news and politics from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy, Objectivism. I'm your host, Amy Peekoff, and also joining me here is cartoonist Bosch Faustin, who will chime in from time to time. And today we continue our intervention series with a look at some foreign policy issues and articles that I've dug up. It's going to be a one-hour hit-and-run get to as much as possible to make our point. And our point, again, is that, yes, you should vote for, I mean, for in a manner of speaking, for Romney Ryan. You should vote against Obama with Romney Ryan this November. You should not abstain. You should not vote for Gary Johnson. You should not vote for any other bizarre candidate out there. You should actually get into the ballot box and vote for Romney Ryan. I invite those of you who are attending live to call in if you want to comment on some of the stories that I talk about today. The number is 760-888-5817. You can also see that number displayed on the Blog Talk Radio page for the show. You can also participate in the chat room, and I see some people are hanging out there in the in the chat room starting to chime in a little bit. First, before we get started, I'm just uh, happy to confirm Next week, at this time, you will be listening to an interview with Leonard Peikoff. Um, it's going to be a pre-recorded interview, and it's going to air, though, at the usual time next Sunday. You can feel free, if you want, to post any questions at my blog, which is don'tletitgo.com. Go ahead and just go to the top post, the post for today's show, and you can post any questions you have there. I can take that into consideration before I go ahead and record the interview. Just keep in mind it's going to be focused on the DIM hypothesis and also the predictions made in the DIM hypothesis. And as you'll see, I think this is going to wind up being one segment in the intervention series. I'll leave it at that for now. Let me actually let me give you one preview because I've been reading from the book a little bit. Um, there is a, a, on page 32, which I believe is chapter two of the book. He says, um, "Oh gosh, I have to actually get the book. Can you grab me the book, Bosch? Bosch is going to grab me the book. Um, I, we're going to use his definition of nihilism today, but there is a wonderful quote on page 32." of the book that I wanted to read you because those of you who appreciate his ability to put epistemological points succinctly will really value this. So, Bosch has got it here. Turn to page 32. Whereas Plato seeks unity in the relationships among pure forms, those of you who are familiar with Plato know that he believes that the you know true reality is the high reality of the world of the forms. So he says, uh, whereas Plato seeks unity in the relationships among pure forms, Aristotle seeks it in the relationships among formed matters. End quote. 
he succinctly puts that difference between the two and the idea of the role of forms in the epistemology of each one. So uh, that's just one little taste of all of the eloquent formulations that he's got in that book. So I do highly recommend it. You can go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com. Again, the post for today where I announce the um you know, the actual interview, I've got a link to the book. So if you want to actually grab a copy of the book from Amazon, there's a link there. Okay, so let's go ahead and dive in about our into our intervention series that we're kind of in the middle of. Again, intervention, I mean it in a tongue-in-cheek way. I don't mean it in the sense that anybody who wants to either abstain or vote for Gary Johnson as some sort of alcoholic. I do actually think you're nuts if you would vote for Obama. I'm not very tolerant of people who actually want to vote for Obama after being bombarded with all the evidence that we've seen in the last four years uh, about him. But if you're thinking of abstaining and you're thinking of voting for, for Gary Johnson, my whole goal here is to convince you to take a different course, to actually go to the polls and cast that ballot for Romney Ryan. Here's the context. The reality is that in this election in 2012, there are only two options. We are going to come away with either Obama-Biden having four more years or we're going to be dealing with a Romney-Ryan administration. We are not going to be getting Gary Johnson. Uh, and then there's that fantasy that Harold, who listens to this show, keeps talking about that somehow we're going to have a, a, some sort of stalemate and neither Romney nor Obama is going to get the 270 electoral votes that's needed. And so then uh, there's going to be somebody different elected by Congress and the Senate. And I'm thinking, who? You know, that you're not going to get anybody better, probably not anybody different than Romney Ryan. I, I don't see how you're going to bypass having one of these two options be the actual option that we're going to end up with. Okay, so given that those are the two possibilities of what's going to happen, then whatever you do this election is going to contribute in some small way to one of those outcomes happening. That's it. So if you abstain or if you vote for any third-party candidate, you are taking a vote away from these two. And whoever the majority of the rest is voting for, in a sense, you're contributing to them winning. You know, there have been poll numbers posted recently. In the last couple of days, Drudge has been saying, oh, you know, Obama's 47 and Romney's 44 or Obama's 49 and Romney's 43 or whatever in the world it is, right? Um, A, you know, Drudge, he's kind of an alarmist, right? But even Drudge today is posting some comparison polls from prior elections showing that there were much larger spreads, for instance, between Carter and Reagan in the so-called polls leading up to the major landslide on behalf of Reagan. So I wouldn't take those polls so seriously. Um, The other thing is there's the Electoral College issue to deal with, so that even if you've got these polls pointing a certain way at this time, you could still have Romney have quite a margin of electoral votes, just depending on how those votes uh, are spread out among all the states of the United States, right? So, I, I mean, it could be close. And on the idea that it could be close, I think it's worthwhile for me to go through this, you know, this intervention exercise. Now, why does it matter who we end up with in this election, right? I mean, they're politicians. 
and has and as many people have pointed out, Romney Ryan, Romney in particular, even more so than Ryan, leaves a lot to be desired. And and during the GOP debates, I took my time criticizing Romney just like everybody else has. Uh, but I think it does really matter because I happen to think, and here I agree with Leonard Peikoff, who's my guest next week on this, that our incumbent right now, the guy who wants four more years, is not just your typical liberal democratic politician. In fact, he is a nihilist. And I think he, you know, he's an egalitarian nihilist, but he is a nihilist nonetheless. And here is uh, Leonard Peikoff's definition of nihilist from the dim hypothesis. He says, a nihilist is one who works to destroy man's mind and values as an end in itself for the sake of destruction. If he is not a philosopher, okay, which of course Obama is not, such an individual typically limits his activity to the ideas and values of a specific field. And so what I do think is that within the realm of, of politics and being the President of the United States, that Obama has worked to destroy values that are important to all of us. And that's why I think that I care, why you should care, who actually uh, comes away with this election. And, you know, this idea, well, we could survive four more years of Obama. I mean, we might. We actually might not, uh, especially with some of the foreign policy stuff that's going on. But, you know, to me, this is not the standard. We need to buy time to finish our educational mission, and I think there's, you know, been quite a bit of progress made, in part thanks to Obama and this first administration. I think the country was pretty shocked at how things were going. And then, you know, what are the things that are selling so well right now? Atlas Shrugged and guns. (laughs) Those are the two items that are selling, right? So, you know, we, we are actually achieving, and, you know, having Ryan as a running mate for Romney has helped to achieve this educational mission. But, you know, I think that based on my observations of what Obama has said and done over the last four years, that we really do need to get him out. And, you know, I, I you can go, if you go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com and you look at Obama's speech shredding, time and again, I just give you example after example of him spewing anti-American garbage in his speeches. And people are kind of lapping it up. One point that I hadn't even thought of in the terms that he put it, when Yaron was on my show, it was several weeks ago, at least five shows back or so. Uh, you can go check it out at the you know Blog Talk Radio or on my blog. But um, when he was here, he was saying it was very important not to give Obama four more years of the bully pulpit to spew this egalitarian nihilist garbage that he has been spewing. I mean, that that in and of itself uh, interferes with our educational mission. So to me, Romney is just your typical politician. He wants to be in power. You can't really trust him. You can trust him only insofar as what he says is something that we're going to be able to hold him to in order for him to get reelected or be popular or liked or whatever it is that he wants. Obama, on the other hand, I do definitely see him as this nihilist, and and I was reminded when I was thinking of this again today of the Kurt Vonnegut story, Harrison Bergeron. It's a reductio of egalitarianism, and in there you see that in order to make people equal, 
I mean, the the actual end game of egalitarianism, if you really want to make people equal, you have to destroy values and you have to destroy human attributes that can produce and, and provide value. Just to give you an idea that objectivists are not the only one who see Obama and understand Obama as the nihilist that he is, I wanted to uh, do a quick reference to the Sultan Kanish. I don't know if you've heard of him. He goes by the name also Daniel Greenfield, but he has a blog, Sultan Kanish, K-N-I-S-H. And uh, this is an August 11th, 2012 post that he put up. He says uh, the, the headline is, The Most Divisive Campaign in American History. And he starts off, he says, in 1980, when President Reagan asked Americans, are you better off now than you were four years ago, it was still possible to campaign on a theme as simple as the job performance of the other guy. He says, but now, 32 years later, the campaign hinges on a much more fundamental split among the voting population. And he says, Romney appeals to voters who are dissatisfied with the last four years. Obama appeals to voters who are dissatisfied with America. And he says that this, you know, basic gap was obscured in 2008 because there were all the window trappings of inspiration, hope, change, et cetera, et cetera. But let me skip down to what I think was just the most uh, eloquent line about what was going on in this election. Greenfield says, he says, quote, there is not a single Obama voter anywhere in the land who believes that another four years of him will make this country better. Not a single one from coast to coast. No, what they believe is that he will make the country a worse place for those people that they hate. That he will have four more years to sink their ideas deeper in the earth, regardless of how many families go hungry and how many fathers kill themselves because they can no longer take care of their families. What they believe is that Obama will grant their group more special privileges and the rest of the country can go to hell. End quote. If that is not nihilism, I don't know what is. And and it's interesting because when in the dim hypothesis, Leonard Peikoff is talking about the nihilist, which is you know epitomized by Kant in philosophy. And then at the end of the chapter, when he's talking about actually the three archetypes, you've got Plato, Aristotle, and Kant as as the three in philosophy that that are the models of everything else. He says. You know, something about, you know, Plato appeals to idealism and then uh, Aristotle uh, appeals to something like enjoying life on earth, but I can't remember exactly the words, unfortunately. But then he says, Kant appeals to hate. Kant appeals to hate. And this is what you've got here. And, and it, like I said, not just objectivists recognize this. Greenfield, as far as I know, I don't even know if he's read Rand at all. Um, he's just very in tune with the facts of reality he definitely knows Obama's records in term in terms of things like economics i am constantly seeing excellent excellent data being shared by someone named Ken Gardner he's both on facebook and on twitter tons of statistics showing how obama has destroyed the economy like no other president the most recent one that i saw today was there were statistics about the growth in jobs after a recession inherited by a president and that Obama's was the worst by far of any. It's like his line on the graph is so far below the others that, you know, there's this whole group of everybody else 
and then his is way, way below. Uh, Obamacare is going to destroy, you know, if it's allowed to go into effect, it's going to destroy the economy, health care, and privacy. And, 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 you know, it's this nihilism about Obama that brings home to me why something like, for instance, there's a debate on my blog today. As soon as I put up a post saying, I want to talk about foreign policy today, everybody comes in there and says, oh my gosh, did you see what Romney said about he's going to replace Obamacare with some stuff that's kind of bad too? I don't care. I really don't care. Why? It's because after looking at everything that Obama has done over the last four years, I am convinced that this guy is out to destroy values. I don't believe that of Romney. I believe he is your typical politician. And so I think in order to buy time, in order to live any kind of a life while we're trying to pursue our educational mission, we have got to get Obama out. It's just as simple as that. And the only alternative to get Obama out right now is Romney, Ryan, um, it's not going to help if you go in and you say, oh, I feel good voting for Gary Johnson because I share so many values with him. That is just, it's not going to help you. It's not going to help anybody. And, I, and that's what I'm trying to say is it's, it's going to not help you. I want to convince you that you actually have a vested interest in casting that vote. Um, now, in t- in terms of this, you know, idea of destruction, right? He's going to destroy a lot more. And and think about it too, you know, he talks about having more flexibility. In the first 4 years he achieved Obamacare. With more flexibility in a second term, what might he achieve? Uh, might he actually get an amendment through so that he's going to get a third and a fourth term? Yeah, maybe maybe these people are right. Maybe we could we could survive one more term of Obama, right? We could survive it. But couldn't Obama make it so that it's not just going to be one more term? It could be more. Why is you know Smith & Wesson doing so well with their sales? Because they anticipate things like this. People are actually worried about their safety and their basic rights in this country at the hands of Obama. And I don't think, to a large extent, that they're overreacting. Latest thing that I saw, FBI is starting to deploy face recognition devices throughout the country so that when you go out in public places, government can see where you're going. It's it's exciting. I mean, we're all going to want to wear veils over our faces, not because we're Islamic, although some people are going to start doing that because they're afraid of being attacked by Muslims or whatever at some point, who knows, but because they're being recognized. So, you know, with Romney... I really do, for instance, uh, suggest that you just go check out uh, Bosch Faustin's cartoon. Uh, Bosch, I thought this was a really good one. And actually, you said it was an idea of some... Who, whose idea was this cartoon? Tell us. It was by uh, my friend uh, Jonathan Aiken. Yeah. It was, it was called The uh, Mitigator, The Mitigator, that Romney would mitigate uh, Obama's policies. Yeah, and that that's all we're looking for. We're looking for somebody who will, to some substantial degree, mitigate. And he's not a nihilist. He's a politician. He likes this country. As far as I can tell, he actually does love this country. And he's able to articulate or at least be the leader of a bunch of people who are effectively articulating some basic American values that you haven't really seen articulated in 
campaign speeches or in convention speeches for quite a long time. And we talked about some of that last week. There was some good stuff. So I think it would be substantially different. If you want to look at the contrast with the Democratic National Convention, please go ahead and go look at um, some of the commentary on this that I've seen. Scott Holleran apparently wrote a very nice uh, report about it. We'll talk a little bit about one element of it today, but I'm focusing, like I said, on on foreign policy stuff. And it was more of, of the same, of the usual things. So we'll talk about foreign policy. This is appropriate. Why? Because we are approaching the 11th, the 11th anniversary of 9-11. It's pretty disgusting to think of where we are today, given that it's the 11th anniversary of 9-11, but that's where we are. And the first thing up is to talk about Obama's weekly address that he gave that they are entitling, and this is the press release from WhiteHouse.gov, coming together to remember September 11th. And by the way, now if you go to whitehouse.gov in hopes of getting text of speeches and things like that, the very first thing when you go to whitehouse.gov is they ask you to give them your email address so that they can send you little updates. Now, you don't have to. You can say, no, continue to the site, which is what I did, and then I got my text here. But uh, they're asking. They would love to have your email address to get you to vote for our wonderful president. In terms of this address, I did watch it on video. I took one for the team again. I watched him. And you watched it as well. Let me ask you this question, Bosch, because, again, when I read this line from uh, Leonard Peikoff's book, I was struck, you know, this idea of Kant appealing to hate. Mm -hmm. Do you get this idea that Obama is kind of holding in some sort of seething hatred? Of course. Of course. To me, he just comes off that way. Well, he's on his best behavior whenever we see him. He's trying to clamp it down. But you can could, you could hear it in his voice. You can hear it in his words. And, and Especially I, when he says, uh, you know, in his address today, we will never be at war with Islam. While Islam has been at war with us for, you know, endless, endlessly at war with us. Right. And, and so I, a lot of times when you see him in speeches in all different contexts, you just feel like there's some sort of anger... Rage. Sometimes, sometimes he slips and he puts that real angry face. If he knows, yeah. puts his puts his brow low and he starts to sneer a little. And by the way, I think I misspoke. He said, uh, well, Leonard Peikoff in his book says that Kant appeals to rage, rage, not hatred, but rage. I think someone pointed that out. Someone pointed that out there. Yeah, yeah. It's it's rage that that he appeals to. Um, I don't know why I think hatred, but yeah, he's got this kind of hatred for the the country. Now, in the in the remarks he starts it out with very generic stuff, you know, we lost all these innocent men, women and children. We have to thank all the first responders. Uh we, you know, 11 years ago we had all these questions. Um and then he talks about his record and then he says the last decade has been a difficult one. He says together we've answered the different questions about, you know, where did the attacks come from? How would America respond? Would they fundamentally weaken the country we love? Blah, blah. He says we've answered those. He says we took the fight to Al Qaeda, decimated their leadership and put them on a path to defeat. I'm sorry. Just one, one second. I have, I have to add something. I notice this with uh, people sometimes uh, when they whisper a certain word when they're speaking, it's a bigger whopper than usual. Uh, Michael Savage used, used to do it when I, when I could bear listening to him, and uh, Obama did it. And what did he whisper? On Which decimated, part? he goes decimated, uh, because it's an absolute lie. 
Al-Qaeda is still active. Our enemies are undefeated. And he, and he knows that. But, yeah. you know, some, some people think that it, it's, uh, since we killed Osama, well, you know, the war is done. Right, right. And I don't think we've even scratched the surface. And then I was I was struck by the language on a path. And I immediately thought of Ryan, you know, Romney Ryan's pledge that we were going to be on a path to a balanced budget, okay? And I have chided them for it and criticized them for that to say it's lame. To, why don't you just balance the budget? Don't put us on a path to a balanced budget in 2000, you know, in 40 or whatever it is. But I would say that this on a path language is even less acceptable in this context of talking about our enemy, because, of course, he he'll, he won't say that Islam is our enemy, but he says Al-Qaeda is our enemy. And why are we only on a path 11 years later to defeating them? So, anyway, as, as we see, we'll see later, Al-Qaeda is rearing its head now in Syria in order to take advantage of the latest potential uh, you know, area that's going to be overcome by the so-called Arab Spring. That's right. At least he didn't take credit for Osama bin Laden's death in this particular speech. He says, thanks to the skill of our intelligence personnel and armed forces. Of course, he's still reminding us that this happened under his watch, right? We're just supposed to remember that in our own mind. And then he says, instead of pulling back from the world, we have strengthened our alliances while improving our security here alone. Now, we're going to talk today about Israel. We have not strengthened our alliance with Israel, but that's a bunch of garbage. He has strengthened the Muslim world. He has. That's what he has strengthened. Um, He says, today a new tower rises above the New York skyline. I mean, first of all, it took forever to get that thing built, and it's nothing like what existed there before, which was a center of business and capitalism. He says, our country is stronger, safer, and more respected in the world. Wow. Lies. Complete lies. And then he says, instead of turning on each other, we've resisted the temptation to give in to mistrust and suspicion. And he says, I have always said that America is at war with Al-Qaeda and its affiliates. So see, he admits we're at war with them. But we're only on a path 11 years later. I mean, this is... This is crazy. And he says, well, we will never be at war with Islam or any other religion. I'll talk about that point in a moment as well. He says, the the attacks have brought out the best in the American people. And uh, then he says, you know, we've had everyone joining the military and everybody is, you know, engaging in this outpouring of goodwill towards our military. And then he says, we've ended the war in Iraq and brought our troops home. We'll talk about how that's going in a minute. He says, we brought it into the Taliban regime. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's going on in Afghanistan. We'll talk about that. We've trained Afghan security forces and forged a partnership with a new Afghan government. And he says, and by the end of 2014, the transition in Afghanistan will be complete and our war there will be over. We'll talk about what is going on in that Afghan war that is about as nihilist as it gets. And then he says, finally, instead of turning inward with grief, we've honored the memory of those we've lost by giving back to our communities. Notice the false alternative here. It's either turn inward with grief, or if you're not going to do that, you're going to honor the memory by 
giving back to our communities, and then he says serving those in need and reaffirming the values at the heart of who we are as a people. Now, this is the scary thing. Obama is betting on altruism and collectivism as the basis of the values in this country. He is betting on progressive education have you know having basically achieved the ideological agenda of having all of us take for granted altruism and collectivism he says uh he says this is why we mark ne- September 11th as a national day of service and remembrance and remember he did this before but uh you know this is just a continuation of that policy he says because we are one american family and we look out for each other not just on the difficult days, but every day. Altruism and collectivism. And then he says uh, at the very end, he gets a little campaign jab in. He says, let us keep moving forward, right? More forward as one nation and one people. So he's turning everything into a campaign speech now by just subtly putting in the word forward. We're going to move forward as one nation and one people. There's a, a quotation from Barack Obama, and I cannot find the exact source of it. I know that it's over a year old, and it draws upon the comment about we're not ever at war with Islam. Uh, I know it's over a year old because it was quoted around September 11th of last year on different blogs around. So if you if you actually search this quotation, you can maybe find the original source. Here it is. America and Islam are not exclusive and need not be in competition. Instead, they overlap and share common principles of justice and progress, tolerance and the dignity of all human beings. End quote. Okay, so he is counting. I assume he's read the Quran. Bosch has told me numerous times that Barack Obama took Quran class when he was a child in Indonesia. Indonesia. I've read the Quran. He's counting, Barack Obama is counting on the fact that people who hear this have not read the Quran, obviously. And if you have read the Quran, then you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't and you don't want to read the Quran, there is something you can do. You could listen to the interview that I conducted with Robert Spencer. It's actually available on the Blog Talk Radio archives. It was from August 30th of 2011, but I went ahead and put it up there on Blog Talk Radio. And that interview was an hour-long interview that we did at the end of this Quran reading group that I led, where we actually read the entire Quran from cover to cover, including commentary. There are numerous places in the Quran where women, of course, are denigrated, but that's no surprise given what you hear about Islam's treatment of women. Uh, There's a little bit about homosexuals as well. There's a number of places where Jews are referred to as being turned into, being descended from, being associated, apes and pigs, right? Um, this idea that there's tolerance and dignity of all human beings, I mean, not to mention the fact that people in Islam are extolled. There's some uncle of somebody who is praised because he does not associate with non-Muslims, that he rejects the society and the company of non-Muslims, and that's what you're supposed to do in Islam. So you can listen to that. Also, just go to Jihad Watch. Go to Robert Spencer's Jihad Watch and just take a look at the things that are done in the name of Islam. And Spencer links to 
credible mainstream news sources, your Reuters, your you know, your actual news articles, latest articles. I mean, you just go there today and just scan. He 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 is a fountain of information there about what Islam does around the world. Female circumcision case. Female circumcision is prominent in I mean it's not prominent, predominant is the word I wanted there. Uh, in Islamic cultures. It's barbaric and it's anti-values right there. Uh, there's also uh, the story about blasphemy. Somebody was put in jail for blasphemy in Pakistan because she either criticized or defaced or did something about the, the Quran. And now I gather she's been released from jail, but it's understood that she's probably going to be killed by some Muslim in the population because she doesn't have any security forces out there. So, I mean, just... Just take a look. You you can see for yourself and, and check that out. Let me just quote from the Egyptian speech. Oh, we have a, a who gave this speech? Obama. Oh, Obama gave this this quote in the speech in Egypt in 2009. Here's Obama. I consider it part of my responsibility as president of the United States to fight against negative stereotypes of Islam wherever they appear. End quote. Why not against negative stereotypes of America, asked Bosch. And I think that that's completely appropriate. So, you know, in, t in terms of this idea of Obama and his treatment of Islam and his pushing of Islam as consistent with American values, it most definitely is not. You know, the, this idea that he gets so much credit for killing bin Laden, I don't think that counts. He basically allowed it to happen. Uh, latest story I heard is that they had to drag him in. He was wearing his golfing clothes, and they had to drag him in to even watch it being done. He just couldn't be bothered because he was playing golf. So maybe that's why he doesn't take credit in his, his speeches so much anymore. Let's talk a little bit about this ending the war in Iraq. Remember he says he's ended the war in Iraq now? Now, I blame the war in Iraq on George W. Bush because George W. Bush started it and he started it with a bad policy and, a, and you know, the actual, uh, you know, methods of war that he conducted are just wrong, completely wrong. And, you know, starting with Operation Iraqi Freedom as if they all want freedom. So, you know, he's not great. But what do we have over there in Iraq? Latest news that I see in the Wall Street Journal today, Sunnis and Shiites, fighting each other, tons of casualties. Months ago, we had a story on Iraq that we discussed on this show about the killing of teenagers who have decided to dress in certain ways as the so part of the so-called emo movement. So culturally, Iraq is, yeah, you know, if, if you have any kids in Iraq who are trying to embrace Western values, forget it. And, of course, in the Iraqi constitution, do we have a Western-style constitution that protects basic rights? No, we have something that nods to Islamic law there. So that's a disaster. What about Afghanistan? Let's talk about Afghanistan. Again, remember in Obama's speech, he is bragging about the fact that we're training Afghan security forces, right? There's an Investor's Business Daily article from August 20th, 2012, Blood of Afghan Betrayal on Obama's Hands. And it turns out that as part of this 
effort. You know, Obama wants to get the troops out by 2012. He's announcing that it's going to be done. He is drawing down all of these troops. As part of this, we have had these trainees, our trusted Afghan partners, as they are being called, quartered inside bases with our military. And moreover, there has been a policy that has said that our soldiers are to be disarmed, not to have loaded weapons in the company of our so-called trusted Afghan partners. And there have been now over 100 so, you know, so-called green on blue or whatever uh, friendly fire attacks uh, climbed past 100 in the past year. Actually, not in the past year, just since the start of this year, there have been 32 attacks resulting in 40 deaths. Last year, there were 21 total attacks, so it's gotten worse. It has taken this for, you know, over 100 of these deaths for the top brass of our military to finally say, okay, you can actually be armed alongside these so-called Afghan allies that we are training. This this article is horrific. I, I commend you know just commend it to you and go ahead and take a look at it. Again, Investors Business Daily: Blood of Afghan Betrayal on Obama's Hands from August twentieth. Can I just add? Can I yeah. add something? Mm-hmm. The uh, general, I guess, in charge of the you know submission in Afghanistan, he uh, literally said this about this issue. Literally said this. Okay, he says one of our battalion commanders publicly and openly hugged his Afghan battalion counterpart. And that solved the problem right on the spot. So, you know, they murder us, we hug them, problem solved, he says. I'm afraid to find out what's happening privately behind closed doors. I mean, honestly. Yeah, I mean, if you think about the news that we do get and then how much worse it might be what we don't get. But think about even this, right? Um, We keep drawing down the troops, right? And in order to meet certain targets of how many that we're supposed to have over there. As we keep drawing them down, the ones who are remaining, their sole job is to so-called train these Afghan security forces. And so what we have done is that we have used Afghan security guards as base security for our military bases so that we can limit the size of the military footprint footprint, so that Obama can have his little press releases and say, okay, we've reduced the number of troops to so-and-so. Now, you know, part of the appeal of reducing the number of troops is because we want to reduce the number of American casualties put into this sinkhole. Um, You know, he, he had said that we have uh, disempowered in some way the, the Taliban. He said that in his speech. We got stories a few months ago that we were engaged in secret negotiations or the Obama administration was engaged in secret negotiations with the Taliban. So it, it's a bunch of phony garbage. Uh, you know, this drawing down the troops is actually having the effect of creating more casualties and casualties in environments that are so horrific. I mean, I, I cannot imagine a commander in chief of our armed forces saying that you are to sit there and remain disarmed and not wear your Kevlar armor while the Afghan soldiers are armed simply because we're supposed to show trust. We're not supposed to just withdraw into ourselves and be untrusting people. Finishes this Investor's Business Daily op-ed, quote, Obama's rush to withdraw 
has needlessly cost at least 100 soldiers' lives and wounded countless others, end quote. And Clint Eastwood understood that, you know, when he was given his little off-the-cuff, no-teleprompter speech last week. He says, okay, that's fine. You want to get out of Afghanistan? Why not just pull them out? Don't announce, and certainly don't then pursue these policies that... uh, put our soldiers at at needless risk. So there's your little bit of what's going on in Afghanistan. And and again, I I see these policies as destructive of American self-confidence, respect for Americans. I mean, that was one thing that I didn't quote uh, for you, but I mean, how how are Americans regarded around the world when we are such easy pickings at the hands of these Afghanis, right? Um, The guy who was the latest one, you know, that they were talking about in this article, Ghazi Mahmoud, he says, quote, I opened fire on three Americans who were sitting together, he says, while smiling for the camera. The reason I killed them is because they have occupied our country. They are enemies of our region, end quote. Actually, not region, religion. They are enemies of our religion. So, so much for us not being at war with Islam. They see us that way. And insofar as we aren't ourselves submitting to Islam, that's what the Quran says that we are. We are enemies of the religion. Egypt, supposedly a shining beacon of the Arab Spring. We've talked in past shows, and you can go ahead and look on my blog at Don't Let It Go. Just search for Egypt, and you'll talk, you'll see stories about the Muslim Brotherhood being leaders of Egypt. And as a matter of fact, I think there's another story about the Muslim Brotherhood that's been breaking this week about the sort of uh, policies that they're advocating, and of course, and they're in charge now in Egypt. So it makes you feel warm and fuzzy. Another Wall Street Journal story that I saw today, and I didn't look at it in, in much depth, but you can go look at it there. Egypt, an Egyptian company, is investing in some sort of technology company in Iowa. Hmm. Oh, you know what it is? No, it's fertilizer. Fertilizer manufacturing in Iowa, which raised my eyebrows a little bit because I I always heard of fertilizer manufacturing as being related to potential chemical weapons. Why are they doing that in our country? I don't know when they've got Muslim Brotherhood leadership in Egypt. In Egypt, they're killing Christians left and right. It's it's horrible. Yeah, crucifying uh, Christians adds adds Bosch. What about Syria? Syria's next on the list. Obama would like to help the insurgents in Syria. I have a Reuters. Okay, so this is mainstream credible media source. Of course, you can find even better news if you go to British news sources than you can get here. I guess we're somewhat sheltered here. But here's a Reuters news source, uh, news story from September 8, 2012, written by someone named John Irish. It says, Jihadists join Aleppo fight Islam- and they eye an Islamic state surgeon says. And what the story is, it's, it's about a surgeon from France who went, yeah, they say jihadists in in the headline. They say jihadists in the the headline now. Um, There's a surgeon in France who went to Syria to just treat 
you know, people as medical patients there. And he was just doing that for a period of time. It's a medical charity called Medicine Sans Frontiers, so Medicine Without Frontiers. Uh, he returned from Jacques Beret is the guy's name. He returned from Syria on Friday evening after spending two weeks working clandestine, 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 clandestinely. Yay! In a, yeah, in a hospital in the besieged northern Syrian city of Aleppo. In an interview with Reuters, the 71-year-old surgeon said that contrary to his previous visits to other cities in Syria, about 60% of those he had treated this time had been rebel fighters and that at least half of them had been non-Syrian. And here's a quote from Jacques Beret, the, the surgeon from France, quote, It's really something strange to see. They are directly saying that they aren't interested in Assad's fall, but are thinking about how to take power afterwards and set up an Islamic state with Sharia law to become part of the world emirate, end quote, the doctor said. The foreign jihadists included young Frenchmen who say that they were inspired by Mohammed Merah, if you remember him. He was a self-styled Islamic militant, says the article from Toulouse. He killed seven people in March in the name of al-Qaeda, including some very young Jewish children in a school, as I recall. The doctor's account corroborates other anecdotal evidence, I'm continuing from the article here, that the struggle against Assad appears to be drawing ever greater numbers of fellow Arabs and other Muslims, many driven by a sense of religious duty to perform jihad, holy war, and a readiness to suffer for Islam. And again, if you read the Quran, over and over and over, people who are willing to fight jihad on behalf of the religion, to spread the religion, are praised, are promised wonderful things in the afterworld. You you want to say that Islam is consistent with American values, it's just not true. Uh, Continuing here with the article, he says, uh, while some are professional jihadists, and that's what they're calling professional jihadists, they are veterans of Iraq, where we're just declaring, you know, victory like we left, Afghanistan, where we're saying everything's all peachy keen now, Chechnya or Libya, and sometimes these people bring expertise. They say some of them are just people bringing goodwill and prayers, jihadists who bring goodwill and prayers. Um, Paris, it says, has for several years been concerned that French radical Islamists who have traveled to lawless zones would return to plot attacks at home. Mera himself, it says, had traveled to Afghanistan and Pakistan to receive training. These are our so-called allies that we're working with, Afghanistan and Pakistan. So this Mohammed Mera travels there, gets training, comes back, and does a little jihadist attack in France, terrifying people. And that's just how it is. Uh, the, the surgeon also added that there is indiscriminate bombing going on there in Syria. And he says, uh, what people have to know is that the real number of dead is a far cry from what's been announced. I'd say you have to multiply by two to get the real figure. So that, you know, whatever they're reporting, you're, there's even more, though. So this is Syria. We're going to intervene on behalf of toppling Assad so that these people can take over. And... Yeah, you get Egypt and Syria. Or Libya. Libya. What else? Oh, Iraq, Afghanistan. 
Yeah, I mean, ev- everywhere we're going to have this this influence, this global jihad, this uh, takeover of, of Sharia. Now let's talk about Iran and Israel, right? Because this is a big thing that probably could affect us, because if Iran gets a nuclear weapon, they're going to go after Israel for sure, which is our ally. How many times have they said that they would like to wipe Israel off the face of the earth, right? I don't even understand what the whole thing is. As I understand, the DNC at the Democratic National Convention they originally in their platform, in the Democratic platform, were going to deny that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And I think that they still don't say that Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. And in effect, what the capital of Israel is, what what Jerusalem actually is, is supposed to be a subject of negotiations between Israel and I guess the so-called Palestinians. Israel, as I have talked about before, but I'm following, of course, Leonard Peikoff and others in this, is, you know, everybody knows that Israel in the Middle East is the, relative to any other country around it, Western country, free country, most most civilized, most consistent with a human life and human values is Israel. It is a beacon in that region. And to not stand by it, I think, is just horrible and, and terrible. And in even Rami, Rami's not perfect, no, but in his speech at the Republican National Convention, he says he refuses to keep throwing Israel under the bus. He used the phrase that that's what we're doing, and that is what we're doing. If you recall, if you go back on my blog, you can actually see the story and, and my analysis of it. In May 2011 at my blog at don'tletitgo.com, I have both a, bo- a podcast and a blog post discussing this point. Obama giving a speech in conjunction with a visit from Benjamin Netanyahu made a call for the negotiations between Israel and the so-called Palestinians to have as their starting point, as their starting point, the pre-1967 borders. And I talk about, in my analysis, what a tremendous attack on human values that that is. That's basically saying that everything that Israel achieved in that war in the name of proper self-defense was unjustified. And you know, and again, what is my standard in foreign policy? I've talked about it time and again on this show, but if you wanted to go take a look again, I think it's articulated succinctly and you can get it for free. The objective standard shares the article that was written by Jerome Brook and Alex Epstein, Just War Theory versus American Self-Defense, where they articulate the standard of a proper American foreign policy as being Ending whatever threat that there is, obviously there has to be an actual threat against you before you are justified in going to war. But then you have to you get to do whatever is necessary to end the threat against your country with minimal loss of life and property and everything on your side. Not sacrificing the lives of your soldiers for enemy civilians and all those kind of things. That's what we need to do. Israel did that in 1967. It took land that were it was necessary strategically in order for it to defend itself from being annihilated. And Obama is saying, oh, let's forget all that and just 
put that on the table as potentially illegitimate. And the starting point for negotiation should now be the pre-1960 seven border. So there, there's an attack right there. I've also got an article from its. Uh, let me see what we got here. I've got. So I'm buried in articles here, guys. I'm so sorry. Uh, I've got this article from WorldTime.com. Yeah, it's Time Magazine. I just want to verify that that was true. So it's World.Time.com. August 31st, 2012, exclusive Time Magazine article, U.S. scales back military exercise with Israel, affecting potential Iran strike. So the whole idea is that Iran, excuse me, Israel and the United States were going to do together this military exercise to demonstrate to Iran that Israel has, I think, both the offensive and the defensive in particular the defensive capabilities, to withstand some sort of a counterattack from Iran. Israel is known, at least in the past, as being very good at coming in and surgically removing nuclear capabilities from hostile nations in the Middle East. Um, did it Did it in Iraq in what year, Bush? 80 or 82. 80 or 82, he says. So They got condemned. Uh, they, yeah, of course, we want them to do it, but we condemn them for it. I mean, it's just horrible the way we've treated Israel all these years. But, you know, if Israel does that, Iran, of course, has vowed some sort of retaliation. The question is, can they defend themselves? The military exercise was designed to show that they could. And if you read this article, I'll just refer you to it again. It's from August 31st, 2012. It is co-authored by Carl Vick and Aaron Klein at world.time.com, and they were talking about in particular that we are not deploying or not committing to deploy as much of the anti-missile equipment that we had promised to have for them before. And the importance of that equipment is that they are able to detect Something like six minutes earlier, the equipment that we have can detect six minutes earlier a launch of retaliatory missiles from Iran. And imagine how valuable that is if you are in Israel. Um, you know that that extra six minutes in order to prepare or maybe you know do anti-ballistic missile stuff, whatever. Israel does have good technology. It's one of the best and most technologically developed countries in the East. Israel is responsible for giving us tremendous medical technology that has helped to extend human life, particularly little capsules that you can swallow that can take film of your entire GI tract and um, detect intestinal bleeding that was previously undetectable because it's too far away from any other kind of scope. So they, they are amazing, but this particular technology could save Israeli lives, and supposedly we're holding out on it. Why? There's a quotation at the end of this. Uh, U.S. Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman Martin Dempsey, the same guy who ordered the firing of, uh, what was what was the guy's name? Matthew, uh, from the Joint Forces Staff College, who was teaching the anti-Islam course. Anyway, uh, maybe you can you can find the name for me, Bosch. But in any event, the same guy, he says, he doesn't want to be in, uh, complicit if, Israel destroys Iran's nuclear capability. Matthew Dooley. Yeah, Matthew Dooley. So Dempsey is, is a gem as well. 
Another story that I found in terms of the effectiveness of the sanctions that Obama keeps pushing as all-powerful, Wall Street Journal from September 9th, today, 8 a.m., Iran oil goes private. Iranian oil now being sold by private companies within Iran in order to avoid the effects of the embargoes and the sanctions on that country. We haven't heard that they've been slowed down that much anyway. Now, then you think, well, what has perhaps worked to slow the progress of Iran's nuclear program? Cyber attacks. Many of us have heard about the effectiveness of the so-called Stuxnet virus or, you know, that this basically shut down some nuclear reactors in Iran and, and, you know, kind of impeded the nuclear enrichment that they're trying to do in order to get all this enriched uranium for a nuclear weapon. Apparently, the Obama administration has, in this case, as it has in other cases, leaked. Somebody in the Obama administration has leaked information about our involvement in the deployment of cyber attacks. So just as, you know, why are they leaking information about SEAL Team 6 and its involvement in the strike on on bin Laden? They're leaking information about these attacks. Robert Reed Daly is the one who uh, gave me the link to this particular story, and his comment, which I think is apt, is that this leaking, of course, is going to impede the effectiveness of these cyber attacks, perhaps, and therefore, if we're not able to stop or slow down the progress on this Iranian nuclear program, we're just, in effect, going to be leaving Israel alone to deal with Iran. And then if they do, of course, we're going to condemn them. That's, well, all, that's all I see under Obama. Anti-Semitism since he was kid. Yeah, I mean, he was. He was taught right. anti-Semitism. Now, in terms of Gary Johnson, everyone, oh, you know, Gary. Who is that? Yeah, wait, Gary, wait, who's Gary Johnson? Gary Gary Johnson is on record as not as saying that he didn't believe Iran is really a military threat of ours anyway. But again, what I can tell you is Israel has been our one ally in the Middle East. Israel has been thrown under the bus not just by Obama but by so many of the other administrations. Maybe not, you know, maybe pushed towards the under the bus, but really thrown on, under the bus by Obama. Iran has been appeased by every president, every president. of the last yeah, six, and and Bosch has got a great cartoon on his blog about that. So I don't know. I've given you a smattering, right? And and again, I do think in, in foreign policy that these are the biggest issues. Of course, we've got Obama having conducted himself in similar horrible ways with respect to North Korea, Mm -hmm. China, we continue to borrow and appease and borrow and appease. I don't think that Romney would be perfect on those either, but I think Romney, again, would mitigate. Uh, I think he'd be substantially better. I don't see a Romney disarmed in Afghanistan while working alongside to train them. I think that he would do more along the lines of bring them home or don't bring them home, but don't put them at needless risk. So I've crammed as much as I can, I think, into a single show. I'm hoping that I've given you a bunch of concretes to show you that the foreign policy that has been deployed by Obama is destructive of our interests, certainly not protective of our interests, and that I 
you know, again, go and and look at Romney, but I do think that he would be substantially less bad. That that that's the way that I'm going to go ahead and put it. So that's the end of this installment in the series. Again, I think next week can be seen as an installment in our intervention series, but you know, we'll see as the content of the interview unfolds whether that turns out to be the case. It's going to be an interview of Leonard Peikoff on the Dim Hypothesis, his new book. If you are enjoying the show, you want to leave a comment or you want to leave questions, please do it on topic. But, yeah, go to don'tletitgo.com. There's always a post corresponding to each podcast, and you can leave comments and questions and enter in on the discussion there. You follow the Blog Talk Radio page for my show, and find me on Facebook at Don't Let It Go Unheard. Thanks, and have a good night, everybody. We'll talk next week. Bye.